So tonight is a night of first for me. It's the first time I've ever preached in a jacket on a Sunday night. I was not planning to, but I feel like it's 13 degrees up on the stage right now. So it's either this or I build a fire up here tonight. Um, the other one is tonight is going to be one of my first nights of actually trying to teach off of my laptop while operating an iPad going along with the screens that are on the side. So we just don't know what's going to happen tonight. So you all just roll with me on this. Have a lot of grace. Be praying for me this evening. Um, also tonight is uh, my eighth time of speaking since last Sunday. So there's been a lot of topics I have covered in this last week, and as a result of that, I've got all sorts of information in my head. Some of that might actually be what I'm supposed to share tonight, so we're gonna find out. All right, so uh, one, thank you all for coming back for our night of answering questions, and we are still working our way through questions that have been submitted. And uh, most of these questions will deal with things like philosophy, uh, Christian living, doctrine, uh, issues of culture, things like that. So as you all know, I try to tackle between five to 10 of these questions each time we get together. Uh, by the grace of God, Lord willing, we will get through six of those tonight. Um, also, we are advertising the general topics in advance through our Sherwood email that comes out on Friday. If you have not signed up for that, it's a great thing to do. Go to our website, sherwoodbaptist.net, and right on the front page, there is a section called newsletter. Click on that, and you can sign up very quickly. Um, a piece I try to share every time I do this is the answers I give are not going to be exhaustive. It's not going to cover things at every angle. Uh, what I'm trying to do is simply provide a reasonable and biblical response to help people on the process of learning and working through some of these questions themselves. So that being said, tonight, I'm going to start with our first question. And this one is going to come back to a discipleship graphic. So that being said, I want to remind you, I'm going to read these questions to you as they have come to us. So here's the first question that came to us. Can you help us understand the new discipleship graphic that comes with this is the gospel? And uh, great question. And in order for us to do that, I first want to at least show you all the graphic that everybody is talking about. This is the one that you're currently seeing up in the atrium. Uh, this is the one that you are also finding in a lot of our new materials. For example, if you've recently gone through Discover Sherwood, this is the new graphic that is in there. And the reason I bring that up is because there's another graphic that many of you have seen over the years. Uh, this was also in the atrium. This is also on a lot of different pieces through the classrooms all around the building. And the reason I wanna bring that up is because when I first met Pastor Michael, we were talking about discipleship and we began to share concepts that we were going through with This is the Gospel, and he was sharing pieces that come into the discipleship that was happening at Sherwood, and we were amazed at the fact that there were so many similarities between the basic pieces that we are describing. So for example, on both of those, it talks about issues of loving God, it talks about growing together with other believers or uniting with other believers, it talks about serving others or serving the world, and they also talk about changing the world or reaching the world or entrusting the gospel as a form of evangelism. So all of those are the same basic pieces that you're going to find between each of the different graphics. So that being said, 
those graphics are going to emphasize these four pieces. Love God, unite with believers, serve the world, and trust the gospel. At the most basic level, what that graphic is there for is to help people understand a biblical process for making disciples. Um, those are pieces that if you were to study the New Testament and you were to look at what Jesus did when discipling the 12, if you were to look at what the Apostle Paul did when he was discipling people like John Mark and Titus and Timothy, you're gonna notice similarities between those teachings. And so we've tried to capture that under those four different headings. So the key words are love, unite, serve, in trust, love, unite, serve, and trust. Jesus is the one who gave us this mission. The mission is to make disciples of the nations. And if we're gonna do that, it's important for us to first ask a question, what is a disciple? If we're called to make them, we probably need to understand what disciples are. So a basic understanding, a New Testament first century understanding of this is a disciple was someone who spent time with their rabbi, listening, watching, and imitating him so that they could become like him and eventually pass on those teachings to others. So whatever we're doing with discipleship, our methods have to line up with what is a first century understanding of discipleship. A second question that we need to ask is how are disciples made? Um, as disciples are with Jesus, as they're learning to be like him, as they're learning to walk with him, he's going to lead them into this life of loving God, uniting with believers, serving the world, and entrusting the gospel. Now, I'm not gonna go through all of the different pieces in depth, but I do want to get you started on the process here and also let you see where more information is at. So under each of those different headings, we didn't wanna just say, you need to love God. Well, the question then becomes, how do I know if I'm loving God? Like if, if it's just in our mind, if it's just based on feeling or emotion, how do we know we're actually doing it? So we've included passages that go along with very definitive pieces of what it looks like to love God. So for example, loving God also comes back to pursuing God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You find that clearly within scripture. It's also about us getting to know him in the word. Uh, we speak a lot about spiritual disciplines in church life, disciplines like study the word and prayer and meditation and service and those types of things. But those are different disciplines that enable us to know God at a deeper level. So there's all sorts of different pieces about what it looks like to love God, to enjoy an intimate relationship with him, to experience communication through prayer, to serve him. I want to encourage you, if you have not been through Discover Sherwood, if you want to see more of what those pieces are like inside this new Piece, the Discover Sherwood booklet, it actually specifically lists out point by point all of the different pieces of what it looks like to love God, unite with believers, serve the world, as well as entrust the gospel. And on each of those, it has biblical references off to the side so that you can look at those pieces and study along the way. Now, the reason I want to bring all of these pieces together as best I can is because if you were to lay those four pieces over your life and just ask God the question, God, am I growing as a disciple of Christ? 
If you lay those four pieces, love God, unite with believers, serve the world, and trust the gospel, lay it over your life and ask God what's missing, you will often find that he will help you see you're not spending time with me. Or maybe it's an issue of you've got a gift, but you're not using it in service. Or maybe it's a situation of you've been entrusted with a lot of truth about what it looks like to follow Christ and you're not sharing that with somebody else. There's a part of our growth in Christ that gets stalled out if we are not actively pursuing Christ in each of those four areas. So in some ways, it becomes like a self-assessment of where you are in your walk with God. So I encourage you, take some time, process those pieces. Love God, unite with believers, serve the world, and entrust the gospel. All right, so here's the next question that came to us. Why is church membership important? Great question. So first, we need to define what is church membership? So church membership is an intentional relationship between Christians and a local church that offers greater opportunities for involvement and accountability. So church membership is important for a number of reasons. And then what you're gonna see on the screen right there, those are specific pieces that come into the church membership right here at Sherwood. But here's just a few reasons why it's important. It helps describe a person's level of involvement within a church. Are they a guest? Are they a regular attender? Are they a member? Now, if you don't think that's important, just think about what would happen if you've got people coming over for Thanksgiving at your house. First time they've ever walked into your house. Now, if they are a guest walking in for the first time and it's kind of coming to the end of the meal, chances are you're not gonna say, hey, if you would go ahead and start washing the dishes with me. You're not gonna put them to work, but you know as well as I do when all the guests leave, family gets to work. You gotta clean up things afterwards. So we want to make sure that people who are coming in and they're just wanting to see what is the church about? What are the teachings of Christ about? Um, is this a church for me? We want them to be able to come in and to see and to experience. And as they're here, Lord willing, it moves from being a first time guest into a regular attender. And if God is leading them in that direction, we would love it if they want to take another step into membership. So when somebody says, I want to become a member, then we wanna make sure that that person understands the beliefs, the values, the vision of the church. Wanna make sure they're in alignment with those things. But then at the same time, membership comes back to the three pieces that are seen on the screen right now. The first of those is salvation. Does the person have a clear testimony of repenting of sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ? Now that is necessary for membership into the universal body of Christ. So it needs to be a major part of whether or not we're bringing people into a local body of believers. The second part comes back to baptism. Has a person been scripturally baptized? That is after salvation and by immersion. And then the next piece, and this is an alignment piece, it comes back to the fact of, has the person gone through Discover Sherwood? Now, you're gonna see some people tonight that are gonna be presented as members. They've gone through Discover Sherwood. And the reason that's so important is because we want people to make informed decisions. We want them to know what we believe. We want them to know why we believe it. We want people to know where we're going. We want them to know how we plan to get there. We want them to understand the vision, the leadership, the structure of what this church is about. We believe that people who are informed in those decisions are happier in membership and they make some of the best members within a church. Now, could you imagine what it's like 
if somebody just comes and they say, hey, I'd love to be able to join the church. And we say, great, come on in. And then it's like six months later that they're like, I had no idea that's what you believed. That's not what I believe. I had no idea that's how you all did things. That's not the way I think you should do things. We just feel like it's really important for people to know those things up front. So that's where church membership comes. Our next piece that we are going to get to tonight, if I can get it there, this is where things are going to get interesting. Question number three. The question is, what is your take on Christians who struggle with pornography? So let me tell you from the very beginning, um, I don't plan to get into explicit details on this. So just if you're here, if you've got younger children with you, just know I don't plan to get into explicit uh, details. But I do think it's unbelievably important that we have grace in this area and that we are very, very clear with how big of a problem this really is, not only for those outside the church, but also inside the church. There is a misunderstanding that many people have that addiction to pornography is a problem for people who are unsaved and those who just don't go to church regularly. That is not the case. In fact, here's just a little bit of the research that has come through the Barna Group as well as Covenant Eyes. Both of those specifically help identify areas of struggle in key areas, and Covenant Eyes is a type of software helping with accountability when it comes to pornography. But these are just a few of the stats that came through. 47% of families in the United States reported pornography is a problem in their home. By the way, Pornography usage increases marital infidelity by 300%. It's not just something that impacts one person. It impacts many. 11 is the average age a child is when first exposed to porn. And 94% of children will see porn by the time they're 14 years old. Christian or unchristian. 56% of American divorces involve one or both parties having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they've had at least one teenager come to them in this last year and say, I've got a problem with pornography. 68% of church-going men view pornography on a regular basis, almost 70%. Now, if somebody might think that's a man's issue, once again, you would be wrong. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least one time a month. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they've never watched porn. 87% of Christian women have watched porn at some point along the way. I hope those statistics are eye-opening. I hope those statistics grab your attention and help you see this is not just a situation for lost people. This is an area of sin and addiction that impacts people within the church. I was telling the pastors earlier this morning at 7 a.m., I shared 
from my experience in counseling, and I've done counseling for almost 20 some years, in my experience in counseling, there are two types of addictive pieces that are sometimes the hardest for people to break. One is an addiction related to food. The other is an addiction related to sex. And the reason is both of those are God-given desires that have been put in a person's life. If you think about it, somebody who maybe has had an addiction to alcohol or drugs or some other type of substance, while there's a chemical change that happens in that person's body, and sometimes that initial step, initial months, maybe even initial years can be torturous. The issue is there was a substance that was introduced into that person's life that was never intended by God to be a part of their life. But when somebody deals with, say, food addiction, and there's multiple ways. It's either food addiction in bulimia or anorexia or a type of food addiction related to a person who is eating because they're, they're nervous or eating because they're bored or, or any number of issues. The point is you get hungry multiple times a day, every day for the rest of your life. You have to deal with those urges. You've got to view that through a biblical lens. And the same is going to be true of sex. God has placed a sex drive in humanity. And when that has been, I guess, depraved, when that's been distorted, when that has been taken outside of a biblical concept of a man and a woman and the covenant of marriage, when it's taken outside of that, it's an extremely difficult piece for people to walk through. So much of my response in this area is going to come back to two answers that I gave the last time we did a night of answering questions. And the reason a lot of my response goes to the same thing is because at that time, the questions were, what would you say to a young person who's dealing with a world of temptation? That seems very specific to what we're dealing with again. And the second part of that is what would you share with believers who continue to struggle with the same sin? So in this particular area, the answers are going to be the same. I start it, preface it every time by saying, if the person is a Christian, if the person is a Christian, if a person is not a Christian, the first step to freedom in this area is to repent of your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. It is the only hope for ongoing freedom in this area. But if a person is a Christian, the answer is not found in focusing on the sin that is hurting them. It is found in focusing on Jesus as their life. Now, let me just say, I don't want to get into all these details on any part of this. When we moved to Las Vegas, my counseling ministry went up probably three to five times what I was doing before and at least 85% of people who were coming to me for help were coming with some form of sexual addiction. And I would sit down with people who had said, I have been to Christian counselors and I've been to secular counselors. I've been in accountability groups for the last 20 years of my life. I have tried to put software on my computers. I've done any number of things and yet this particular sin just keeps coming back. And here's the thing, when you read a lot of your Christian books that are dealing with sexual temptation, most of the time they come back to this basic premise. Sin is wrong, you shouldn't do it, 
And things will get better if you read your Bible, pray, go to church and find accountability. But here's the issue. I sat down with person after person after person after person who would weep in my office and say, I'm in church every time the doors are open. I'm reading my Bible every day. I have begged God to take away this addiction out of my life. And yet I still find it to be a struggle. I don't know what to do. So that is literally what I worked on for my dissertation in my PhD was hope for the sexual addict. Because I didn't know out of coming out of seminary what to do other than the same things I was told to do. I, I was telling people, you need to be involved in church, you need to pray, you need to be in the word, you need to have accountability, you need to stay away from certain areas. And they were doing exactly what I told them to do and they still weren't experiencing freedom. And here's the reason why this is so important. If God does not change the heart at a desire level, a desire level, it is behavior management, not character change. He has to change the desire level. And when he changes desire level, here's what happens. They find freedom. So I would tell people, and they would get frustrated with me. They would come and they would say, here's what I'm going through. Can you help? And I would say, I believe God has an answer, but my answer is going to sound strange. My job is to help you have as close and as intimate of a relationship with God as you can possibly have. And along the way, he will walk you into freedom. And they would say, okay, what do I do? And I would teach them about intimacy with God. And they would get into studying the word and being alone with God and growing in their relationship with God. And then week after week, they keep coming back and saying, all right, so when are we going to talk about it? I was like, nope, 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 not going to talk about that. They're like, well, when are we going to talk about it? I was like, you don't solve the problem by focusing on the problem. You solve the problem by focusing on the solution. We need to make sure you are in right relationship with God, a growing intimate walk with God, and let him walk you towards victory. And over time, here's what began to happen. They would find freedom. And they would be, maybe at one point, they would come to me and they was like, it's been three weeks since the last time I viewed pornography. Or somebody might say, it's been three hours or four days or whatever it might be. And then after they begin to work on relationship with God, I would ask them, so when's the last time the temptation hits you in a way that you succumb to the temptation? And they'll say, it's been two months. It's been three months. And I was like, so what have you been doing this time? I've not been doing anything other than focused on my relationship with God. And I was like, isn't it amazing how when God begins to become your greatest, here it is, desire, he changes character from the inside out. If it is not flowing out of an intimate relationship with God, it is going to be temporary at best, white knuckling your way through. And somebody might say, well, listen, I never focused on relationship with God. All I can say is don't brag, don't brag. The enemy is really, really good about giving people periods of perceived victory to make them think they can accomplish this in their own strength. But when the setting's right, when the circumstances are right, when the enemy is ready, he will bring havoc back through that person's life again. So I go back again the importance of relationship with God. Now, somebody might say, but Paul, I read my Bible. I pray, I go to church. 
I'm focused on my relationship with God and I'm still struggling. I would go back and say, you can do the right things with the wrong motivation and it's not gonna help. So here's an example. Let's say a couple is experiencing an anniversary. The husband comes home, has a bouquet of flowers and he throws the bouquet of flowers out on the table and he tells his wife, I know it's our anniversary and you would be mad if I didn't get you something. So here's some flowers, you might wanna put them in water. Now ladies, would that be okay? Okay, it might be the right action of bringing flowers, but with the motivation being wrong, it's still not received the right way. If the motivation was, I just don't want my wife to be angry with me. If the motivation was, if I give her this, then maybe she'll give me something else. Like if the motivation is wrong, then you're gonna find that the act itself did not accomplish the right thing. And when it comes to the spiritual disciplines, we can engage in the right things. You can read a Bible, you can recite a prayer list, you can go to church with the wrong motivation. If I don't do this, God's gonna be mad with me. If I don't do this, people gonna talk bad about me. If I don't do this, something worse is gonna happen in my life. And instead of the person going and spending time with God so that they might get to know God and that God would change them, they have another motivation behind why they're doing what they're doing. The issue comes back to motivation aligning with the right activity. A sin problem always points back to a relational deficiency. For the believer who is struggling with pornography, let me simply say, go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. 2 Timothy 22, verse 22. The text says, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee the situation. Get away from the temptation. Keep those safeguards in your life. All of that is important. But the word not only tells us what we are to run from, it also tells us what we are to run towards. Pursue righteousness, pursue faith, love, and peace. And here it is, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Did you know if you try to do this by yourself outside the community of believers, you are prolonging the pain. There is a part of our healing, there's a part of our righteous living that happens because it's iron sharpening iron. It is believers walking through struggles with others. It's each one bearing one another's burdens. There is safety in community with other believers. So if you get nothing out of what I just said, get this, there's hope, there's hope. The gospel is just as powerful as it's always been. As we found in the Old Testament, God's arm is not shortened that he cannot save. He can still accomplish it, but it all flows out of an intimate relationship with God. All right, so question number four. It comes to how can I argue against evolution and promote creation? All right. So I would probably caution against arguing with anybody about anything, if you can avoid it. Amen. Okay, and, and on that, I, I'm not necessarily trying to be funny. If it's somewhat humorous, then praise the Lord for that too. 
but my statement actually is grounded in frustration, time, and impact. It is good to know what you believe, and it's good to know why you believe it. But there's a whole other level of feeling like it is up to you to argue somebody towards truth. If someone is interested in understanding a biblical viewpoint, I think we need to have all sorts of time and grace and opportunity to sit down and talk with that person through those things. It's good to have those conversations. But I'm just gonna speak on my behalf and, and as a pastor, people bring me the most random questions all throughout the day. And, and so anyway, just from my perspective, if someone is coming and they want to argue a point or try to prove something wrong within the Bible and they just got an ax to grind, I simply say, God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs> I, I, I just don't even wanna get into it. And it's not that I'm not interested, but the, the issue is if a person is not wanting to understand, if they come and they say, I don't know how to process this, would you be willing to walk me through it? Yes. If they just wanna come and argue, I, I've just noticed over my life that by the time it's done, I find myself incredibly frustrated with that person, frustrated with the amount of time that just went into that, and frustrated with how little impact it actually makes. It rarely changes the situation, but it does change my perspective of them. I just don't like them that much afterwards. So I just try to avoid the situation. So that being said, it is good to study and be prepared to know why you believe what you believe. Now in this particular topic, we literally could spend the next 20 Sunday nights talking about this particular issue. And so I'm not gonna try to unpack things and, and just say, hey, if you know these three statements or this one rule or this one question, that's gonna be enough to win a debate. Uh, that's not going to be the case in this. So instead, I want to go through and try to provide you all with a number of resources that you can go back and check out at your own leisure. Now, before I give you my resources, I need to give, I don't know, a little qualifier up front. Um, you don't have to agree with everyone about everything in order to take some things that they say as good advice. So before I give you my list and you get mad with me, I just want you to know that different people have different pieces that they share that are really, really strong. Um, I, and I've shared it before. Unfortunately, I think the church has gotten so wrapped up in cancel culture that we can no longer simply come out and say, I agree with this person on this and they've got some good points, but I don't agree with them on everything. Like to me, that's a very valid way of walking through life because I don't even agree with myself all the time. There's things I thought three months ago, I'm like, that's a stupid thought right there. So I can't hold somebody else to a level that I wouldn't hold myself to. So here are a number of the pieces that I think that can be helpful. And this is just a list of those that you could work through. So one of those is Darwin's Black Box. This is by Michael Behe or Behe or something. It's a B-E-H-E. However that is pronounced in your world, go ahead and do that. Um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. That is one of the classics that works through a lot of this information. The Battle for the Beginning by John MacArthur is a fantastic book on creation. 
Um, another one here is The Creator in the Cosmos by Hugh Ross. And then I've got a couple of pieces over here that I believe might be helpful. A couple of websites, uh, AnswersInGenesis.org. Um, this is going to be a very helpful one. So many different pieces that come with that. And also ReasonableFaith.org with William Lane Craig, uh, one of the most brilliant apologists and thinkers of our time. So I would encourage you, take time, read through the resources, um, when you get into those moments, again, ask God, is this a debate I want to get into? Is it an argument I want to get into? Or is the person genuinely asking for guidance and help? And if so, it's good to know, here's some resources, here's the pieces as best I understand it. And this is the way I do it a lot of times. If somebody's asking me a question about a topic like that, then I know that that's not my specialty. That's not what I have devoted my life to, is to answer questions about one particular topic. But there are a number of individuals and there's ministries out there that that's exactly what they are doing. It's best to refer people back to those, but you have to know what those particular sites are. All right, so here's our next one, question number five. This is a longer question. It deals with works versus relationship. So here's the question. Some of us were raised in other denominations where works and outward actions were the focus rather than relationship, which creates a struggle of condemnation when we don't meet those ingrained works expectations. How do we rest and trust that God loves us? Head knowledge versus heart knowledge. We hear the word that it's by grace that we're saved and not by works but struggle to embrace that truth. Lots packaged together here. So let me say as a recovering legalist, as somebody who um, wants verification of everything multiple times before I fully feel like I can walk forward in faith, I understand this particular struggle. There's two pieces that have to be there in order for that struggle to begin to subside. The two pieces are a growing relationship with God and believing his word. If those pieces do not enter into this conversation, the person will continue to struggle with those same doubts, those same issues over and over again. So you all have heard me say it multiple times, everything flows out of relationship with God. Your relationship with God will grow as you spend time with him where the focus is on knowing him. When you read the Bible, read it and say, God, help me to know you. Help me to know your character. Help me to know your heart. Help me to understand your desires. You, you get to know him. As God begins to reveal himself to you through the pages of scripture, you begin to celebrate those things. You, you get excited about who he says he is within the word. There has to be this growing, vibrant relationship with God. So again, you don't change the problem by focus on the problem. So if the problem was works-based righteousness and legalism back over here, but the answer is relationship with God, grace and freedom on the other side, you need to emphasize and spend time in that relationship with God, focused on grace, focus on walking with him. Relationship has to be huge. But the second part is when God reveals truth, we have to believe what he has revealed. We just have to believe it. 
At some point, we either believe him or we don't. We either believe that he is good and he is right and he is trustworthy or we don't. We either believe that scripture is God's word or we don't. So it also is helpful sometimes to back up and to ask this question. What else would God have to do to show you he loves you? If you're struggling with, does God love me apart from works? What else would he have to do to show you he loves you? Here's just a couple of thoughts. He created you. He came for you. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He rose from the dead that you might have relationship with him. He offers forgiveness and reconciliation to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in him. Through the scriptures, he has revealed his heart for us. He has given his promises to us. He has shown his character to us. He has provided evidence for those of us who love reason and logic. He's provided that for us. At Pentecost, he sent his spirit to be with us and to be in us. He says in his word, these things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. He's literally put it down in black and white for us to be able to read. The list could go on and on. So the question becomes, what else would he have to do at this point for you to believe that he loves you? When he's done what he did, when he wrote what he has written, when he offers what he does, we are facing a decision of will I trust God? That is a faith proposition and that's only something that each person can answer before God. Will we trust him? I've said it before, don't ever put a question mark where God places a period. He says he loves you. He says that salvation is not about works, it is by grace through faith. We have to believe what he has declared. So question number six is dealing with free will in heaven. So here's the question that came to me. Will we as Christians have free will in eternity future? And could that lead to sin? Why or why not? These are questions I think people think about late at night and they're just wondering if there's ever an opportunity to ask a pastor, I'm gonna bring this one out. They've been saving that one for a while. So did you know that that's actually one of the most frequently asked questions for 2000 years of Christian history? And basically the idea behind it is if Adam and Eve sinned while being in a perfect setting, is it possible that hundreds of millions of Christians one day in heaven in a perfect setting might also sin if they have free will? Well, the answer is both easier and harder than we might think. So it all depends on how you define the phrase free will. Uh, in general, there are two different understandings of what this phrase means. There is what's referred to as libertarian free will, and then there's what's called Christian free will. And both of these are important to define. So the first of those is the idea of free will that asserts that a will is free when it is unbiased and completely unbound by any causality. 
That, that basically means there's nothing that influences that person's will. It's completely free. It's not determined by human nature. It's not determined by environment. It's not determined by God's will. It's not even determined by our own desires. This is an understanding of free will where these things outside of that may influence or exert an influence on the will, but they do not ultimately determine its choices. This version of free will is always considered to be at opposition with what's referred to as the sovereignty of God. Okay, that should be a, an alarming piece right there. If that's a person's view of free will, just know it's automatically at odds with a major doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, Christian free will on the other side is an understanding of free will that asserts that libertarian free will is imaginary um, or at most, it only existed with Adam and Eve. Now, in this idea of the will, it's always biased in one way or another. It's either towards sin, the will is biased towards sin, or it is biased towards righteousness. This version of understanding free will is biased because our nature is always going to lead one way or the other. Prior to Christ, there was a sin nature that left it biased towards sin, after salvation, we've been given the nature of Christ by the Spirit of God, and as a result of that, there is a bias towards righteousness. So under this understanding, freedom depends on whether the will is biased towards sin or towards righteousness. If a will is biased towards evil, then it is not free. It is always enslaved to sin. If a will is biased towards righteousness, then it is freed, freed. There's a D that now comes into this. It is freed from the slavery of sin, but even then it is free to do what God desires it to do. So if, you're, if your idea of free will is the ability to do whatever you want, that idea of free will is not found in scripture. Freedom of will is the desire to do what is right according to what God describes. So a will that is compelled to choose evil is not actually free. Now, our present wills are only partially free because we are still what's referred to as mortifying the flesh. That means we are refusing it, we are starving it, we are rejecting the flesh. The flesh is the remnants of that old sin nature in Adam. Upon glorification, that is in the new heavens and the new earth, our wills will be truly free, fully biased towards righteousness. Now, Augustine spoke of four states of humanity, four states of mankind. And he said these four states correspond with different stages of life. So he corresponded those with before the law was given, under the law, under grace, and then a fourth stage is in full and perfect peace. Now he says the will is going to have a different determining factor based upon those stages. So here's the way he would walk through it. Before the fall, we were able to sin and able not to sin. Okay, think of Adam and Eve on that. Able to sin, able not to sin. After the fall, we are not able to not sin. Did you get that? not able to not sin. There is now a sin nature. There is now a proclivity, an inclination, a desire pulled towards sin. 
Under grace, when a person is saved, a regenerate person who is yielded to the spirit does not have to sin. The power of sin has been broken, okay? In heaven, a glorified person is freed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin, so that they are now unable to sin. But that is in heaven, that is the glorified person. The new heavens and the new earth will not be a return to the seemingly unbiased state that Adam and Eve were in, as best we can tell through scripture, it will be a better state where we are fully free from any temptation or desire to sin and instead fully desirous to glorify God for the rest of eternity. That's a good time. Now, some of you all did not know you were gonna go that deep into ideas of free will on a Sunday night, but uh, that's what God has for you this evening. So. That being said, that is six questions, Lord willing, six somewhat decent answers that uh, are aligned with scripture. And uh, so that's what we have time for tonight. But um, I am going to take a moment right now and I am going to encourage anyone who is gonna be presented as members tonight, Pastor John, you're going to be standing over on the wall so people can begin to walk that direction. And as people are kind of going that direction, uh, let me give you all a little bit of a commercial break on some stuff that's gonna be happening over the next couple of weeks. So next Sunday morning and Sunday night, Bob Baki is going to be preaching here. And many of you are familiar with Bob Baki. He has been a part of the Refresh conferences. He has preached multiple times here at Sherwood. We are excited about having him come and to preach in the morning as well as in the evening. Uh, for those of you who have been a part of the morning services, just know uh, as we continue after that in our series on gospel living, we're going to be addressing just before for Thanksgiving, Lord willing, or maybe it's right after Thanksgiving, I think it's the 26th, uh, we're going to address the gospel and stress. I don't know how your Thanksgiving's gonna be, but Lord willing, if you come out of Thanksgiving stressed out, there's gonna be a good word for you once you come to church on that following Sunday. But we're gonna also deal with the gospel at home, the gospel in community, and the gospel in rest. And then the final thing that I would love to be able to just share with you all is would you all be in prayer even at this time for the Wonder Christmas concert that's happening December the 9th and 10th? This is an event that has been going on for a number of years. There are people who will come on those particular nights that don't normally come to church. Um, and over the last several years, we've seen that there's been between 40 to probably 60 people who come to faith in Christ on those nights. It is a wonderful time of outreach in the community. So. If you would, be in prayer uh, for those nights. Be in prayer for people who are inviting others to come. Be in prayer for those who are going to be invited to come. We are asking God to do a lot there. So I'm gonna have a quick word of prayer and then I'm going to turn things over as far as with uh, Pastor Ken. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time. Lord, may you continue to guide and direct. Thank you, Lord, for those who are being brought into membership tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.